Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 18. Last week, after several episodes, I wrapped up the religious history of ancient Egypt. I also covered the role of magic in their religion and where magic made an impact in Exodus. I then walked from the first evidence of people in the region to the end of the prehistorical period. This week, I'm picking up where I left off and going through the reign of the first pharaoh. So let's get started. When I left off last week, there were essentially two separate kingdoms. By around 3600 BC, the Neolithic Egyptian societies had fully converted from hunter-gatherers to a civilization based on the raising of crops and the domestication of animals. Not long afterwards, the society began to grow and advance rapidly. Free time, economic prosperity, increasing lifespans are all thought to have contributed to this. A new style of pottery appeared, similar to that found in the Levant, and probably indicating trade, but at a minimum contact between the two civilizations, and copper became more widely used. The Mesopotamian technology of sun-dried bricks appeared, as did other building practices, such as the use of the arch and recessed walls. Funerary practices for the pheasants would have been the same as in the pre-dynastic times, but the rich demanded something more. And, before you ask, let me address something simple. You may be wondering why their funeral practices make it into so many episodes. Well, they constructed elaborate and well-engineered tombs. Many of these have stood the test of time, so much of what we know about them stems from what the tombs have yielded. The ancient Egyptians began construction of simple rectangular tombs, more of what we would think as mausoleums, during this period. The actual name for these tombs is Mestaba. These Mestaba would become the models for the massive later Old Kingdom building projects, such as the Step Pyramid. Also during the pre-dynastic period, the growing of grain and the centralization of power was established. Both of these would lead to the success of the empire for the next 800 years. At the same time, a slow, gradual process of unification was occurring. When it was all said and done, around 3400 BC, there were essentially two separate kingdoms. One in the north, aka Lower Egypt, and also called the Red Land, or maybe the Reed Land, and another in the south, aka Upper Egypt, and called the White Land. The Red Land extended from about the Nile River Delta and maybe to Afi. The White Land was from Afi to Gebel S. Silsala. More on these two in a minute. Before the political union, perhaps long before, the two kingdoms grew closer together in terms of cultures and economies. This linkage existed maybe for centuries prior to any political joining, and we see these forces in effect in today's political economic realities. Countries tend to establish economic connections long before political connections. In the case of the early Egyptians, smaller regions established trading networks while at the same time, the people of these cities and towns set about organizing agricultural labor on a larger 
and larger scale. It was during this period that the Egyptian writing system was refined. In the beginning, Egyptian writing was primarily a few symbols that served as the meaning for several words. The earliest Egyptian hieroglyphs appeared just before the period. Though little is known of the spoken language they represent. It was not until the end of the Third Dynasty, which I'll get to next week, that it was expanded to more than 200 symbols, both phonograms and ideograms. Now, I previously covered these in depth, so I'll just keep moving along. During the pre-dynasty, so in the Archaic period, well, really through all of the kingdoms, most ancient Egyptians were farmers living in small villages, and agriculture along the Nile formed the economic base of the Egyptian state. We see this in Exodus. The agriculture was mostly barley and wheat, and livestock. The annual flooding of the Nile provided both irrigation and fertilization each year. The farmers sowed the grain after the floodwaters had receded and reaped it before the season of high temperatures and drought. Then, around 3200 BC, a southern king, known as Scorpion, made the first attempts to conquer the northern kingdom. His efforts were apparently futile. A century later, King Menes would conquer the north and unify the country, becoming the first king of the first dynasty. Menes is essentially the legendary first king of a united Egypt. I'll discuss the word legendary in a bit. In uniting the country, he founded the first dynasty. He also founded Memphis. Uh-huh. We know of him mostly because of later sources, like Manetho's chronology, written in the 3rd century BC. I discussed Manetho several episodes ago, but as a reminder, he was a Ptolemaic Egyptian priest and history scholar. Menes is also attributed to on the Turin king list, the Farlarmo stone, and a few archaeological artifacts. Early scholars of Egyptian history regarded Menes as the first historical king, primarily from written records. As time wore on, and spurred on by the lack of archaeological evidence, scholars began to question whether he really existed. The alternate theory was that his image was merely a composite figure drawn from the memories of many kings. Legendary. Flinders Petrie, a 19th century English Egyptologist, proposed that the name Menes was actually an honorific title, meaning he who endures, and therefore not the king's personal name. He also suggested that the actual first pharaoh was Narmer, who began rule around 3150 BC. Narmer's existence, unlike Menes, has been firmly established in the written record and also through archaeological artifacts. One such piece is the Narmer Palette, a siltstone engraving depicting Narmer's victory over Lower Egypt. The hieroglyphic depiction on the artifact is thought to show the unification of the two Egypts. The palette, while showing a military victory, is considered by some scholars to be royal propaganda. The modern school of thought is that Menes may be the same person as Narmer, but there are some researchers that believe Menes may actually be Narmer's son, Horaha. Nonetheless, 
Whichever one it is, or isn't, the story of the unification doesn't quite match. Narmer is thought to have united the two lands of Egypt peacefully over time. By marrying a princess from the rival land to consolidate his power, and then began building projects and further developing trade with other cultures. More on armor in a minute. Now, it may be that a slow, peaceful unification wasn't grand enough for a kingdom that would become so dominant, so the story of a conquering king may have been invented, and it didn't play into the cultural need for duality. Think back to the several episodes on their religion. For the Egyptians, all life in the present world and the afterlife was a matter of balance and needed to be lived in harmony with everything else. This term was ma'at. Kings were not accepted from this harmony. It was thought among the ancient Egyptians that many gods ruled Egypt before Menes and, in order for him to be the first king, he needed to provide the same balance a balance between the forces of chaos and order, war and peace, equilibrium, all in balance, and all of this coming with the unification of the two separate lands, upper and lower, north and south, delta and valley, desert and oasis, and the duality was seen in other areas like the royal titles, the king's titles were Lord of the Two Lands and King of Upper and Lower Egypt. What he wore reflected this, too. Narmer was sometimes depicted wearing the white crown associated with Upper Egypt and the red crown of Lower Egypt, or sometimes the double crown, which incorporated the crowns of both regions. The crown was typically made of the lotus flower for Upper Egypt and the papyrus reed for Lower. Overall, North and South were distinct, but both were necessary to create a whole. Prior to Menes, Arn Armour, take your pick, there was an ongoing conflict between the states of Upper and Lower Egypt that resulted in chaos. But seriously, what do you expect when your king is named Scorpion? That's got to sting. Menes united the kingdom and thus begins the prosperity, all because of the balance. In their society, they knew that chaos could reign again, and so the king needed to be attentive. However, he could not be a wimp, and therefore had to be a forceful soldier who could subdue the forces of chaos when needed. The legendary Menes was thought to have united the two lands through conquest, and afterwards instituted policies that led to peace and order, a balance between the forces of chaos and order. But this was most likely untrue, and the uniting was accomplished by a seemingly politically savvy Narmer. In their mythology, the unification of Egypt was portrayed as the falcon god called Horus, who is usually identified with Lower Egypt. In the legend, Horus was seen as conquering and subduing the god Set, who was identified with Upper Egypt. Divine Kingship which would persist in Egypt for the next 3,000 years, was firmly established as the basis of Egypt's government. The unification of societies along the Nile has also been linked to the drying of the Sahara. Obviously, if connected, only one could have caused the other. So, before moving on, 
a little about the legend that would become Meanies. And you've got to be warned, it may not be true at all. A myth. Anyway, Meanies hailed from the city of Hyrcanopolis, but other sources list Thinis. When ruling Hyrcanopolis in Upper Egypt, he conquered Thinis and Nakata and consolidated power in the region. He then traveled north to Lower Egypt and began a systematic campaign to subdue that region too. The legendary leader was also credited with inventing writing, even though this had also been attributed to an Egyptian god. After unifying the lands, he instituted religious practices and formalized the religious system. And, after uniting the whole of Egypt, sometime around 3150 BC, Menes was thought to have reigned for 62 years, a time so prosperous that the concept of luxury was invented, which is a really odd thing to consider in our Western First World reality. Luxury. You'd think it had been around forever. But his reign was so prosperous that the Egyptians did not have to work as hard as they used to. This led to more free time, which begat hobbies such as carving, sculpting, sports, brewing beer, and cultivating private gardens. So, is that enough to be legendary and to establish a kingdom? Don't answer yet. It may be enough in a boring world, one that doesn't yearn for larger-than-life figures. Meanies, though, would take it to a whole other level. In order to escape rabid hunting dogs, Meanies rode on the back of a crocodile, and in doing so founded the city of Crocodipolis, of course. He then established the city in Imbu Hedge, which translates to White Walls. It would later be known as Memphis. He made it his capital. But he didn't just say, I think this is where I'll build my city. No, he had to first dam the Nile to divert water away from the chosen site. Once the land was recovered, then his great palace and all the administrative buildings would be constructed. Apparently, the land around Memphis was extremely fertile, and the water diversion story helped to explain this fertility. Once all of this was done, he instituted the practice of sacrificing to the gods and ensured that harmony was maintained throughout the land. And he reigned for many, many years, but in the end, he too was a mere mortal. His demise came when he was killed, then carried off by a hippopotamus. Legendary. The Egyptians were not alone in a legendary creation story. I've already covered similar stories from Mesopotamia. And the Greeks had the Titans and their gods, the Romans had Romulus and Remus. But the Egyptians had Menes and a hippopotamus. And you may be asking, why a hippopotamus? Well, to the Egyptians, the hippopotamus was a formidable animal that they hunted. And they viewed death by hippopotamus as a particularly gruesome way to leave this life. Now, some of this is still true today, as the beast is considered the deadliest large animal in the world. More human deaths than lions, tigers, bears, oh, and sharks. Hippos were also associated with Set, the god of chaos. 
And remember, it was Set who killed his brother Osiris and was eventually killed by Osiris's son Horus. Well, as much as their gods could be killed. In keeping with the principle of duality, however, Set's wife was Tararet, and she has been depicted as a woman with the head of a hippopotamus. She was also considered his protector. The duality of these two gods may have been derived from the Egyptians' view of hippopotami. In this species, the females protected and nurtured their young, while the males were aggressive and destructive. Mini's death in the mouth of a hippopotamus may have been designed to show that even he could be overcome by the forces of chaos. And if the man who rode on the back of a croc could succumb to a hippo, and therefore chaos, it could happen to you, too, and to society as a whole. Remain diligent. Hippos are waiting. And for clarification, Set's wife Tauret did not represent the protection of everyone. She only protected mothers and children. So, don't misinterpret the tale as a defensive deed of the gods who may have taken him from Earth. The legend of Minis served to symbolize the fortunes of a united land, but was most likely invented centuries after the period. He came to be viewed, true or not, as a great king capable of amazing feats. He was also seen as a leader that established a golden age at the beginning of recorded history. Like the founders of past and present empires, Minis served as an ideal of the culture's values and what it aspired to. To the Egyptians, it seems that his actual existence may not have mattered. What did matter was what his story meant to the people of his country. So that's the legend of Minis. But the actual uniter may have been Narmer. And he certainly didn't do it riding on the back of a croc, but through his political prowess. Narmer set himself up as supreme king of both Fur and Lower Egypt. In fact, he would come to be known as the first pharaoh of Egypt. While the general consensus is that he did it peacefully, there is some evidence that at least part of the conquest was military. He may have led military expeditions through Lower Egypt to put down rebellions. And, as with the Minis legend, maybe even did the same in Canaan and Nubia. More on the potential expedition into Canaan in a minute. Now, don't think that the uniting of Upper and Lower Egypt was completed during his reign. As we will see in future episodes, internal strife continued through the early dynastic period. But during the period, the pharaohs established a national government and appointed royal governors. Over the course of his long reign, he started large building projects and more firmly established small cities. At the same time, Memphis, sitting near the start of the Nile River Delta, would grow into a great metropolis that dominated Egyptian society during the Old Kingdom. The Archaic period saw the development of the foundations of Egyptian society, including the all-important ideology of kingship. To the ancient Egyptians, the king was godlike and closely identified with the all-powerful god Horus. Unlike Menes, Narmer is not thought to have instituted religious practices, but more likely formalized the religion. And many of the buildings I mentioned a moment ago were religious temples. 
fully intertwining the political with religious. Narmer first ruled from the city of Hierakonopolis, then from Memphis. Despite the relocation of the capital, Abadias remained the major holy site in the south. Trade increased significantly under his and the subsequent rulers of the early dynastic period. It was also around this time that their funerary practices began to take on a more formal presence in the society. As I've alluded to, this time is generally referred to as the Archaic Period, and sometimes you will see it called the Early Dynastic Period. It generally includes the First and Second Dynasty, and spanned from about 3200 to 2686 BC. This time marks the official beginning of the Old Kingdom. The symbols of ancient Egyptian civilization, its art, architecture, and many aspects of its developed religion were formed during this period. So, what is he alleged to have done in Canaan? Well, according to Manetho, quoting, Minis made a foreign expedition and won renown, end quote. Which is rather ambiguous, but he did go abroad. Now, there have been curious archaeological finds in Mesopotamia, specifically his name, well, the name of Narmer, has been found at nine different sites in the region. I'll get more specific on these in a second. But first, and to be clear, it's known that the Egyptians had ventured into the region prior to Narmer, but it's thought to have peaked during his reign and then declined precipitously afterwards. It's commonly believed that the connection between Egypt and Mesopotamia started sometime around the 5th millennium BC, which was long before he showed up and it came to pretty much an unexplained abrupt end during the Second Dynasty, which I'll get to next week. The relationship between the two is thought to have peaked just before an armor, or maybe during his reign. Okay, as for the inscriptions attesting to him found in Canaan, so far, about 33 Egyptian inscriptions from the period have been found there, among which 20 have been attributed to armor. And these are not your garden variety inscriptions. They are officially known as serics and take the form of a rectangular frame contained in a niched facade of the palace or other wall in ancient Egyptian architecture. The frame is usually surmounted by the Horus falcon. Of the inscriptions dated to before an armor, only one serric of Ka and another of Irihor have been uncovered in Canaan. Now, there are other earlier serics, but they are either generic and do not refer to a specific king, or are not for kings attested to in Abadias, or at least they may not be known to us yet, and they are not from other regions or city-states. After Normor, only one serric that can possibly be attributed to his successor, Horaha, has been found in Canaan thought to indicate the decline of Egyptian influence. The inscriptions are not the only evidence of an Egyptian presence or influence in Canaan. It's perhaps best known through uncovered pottery. And before you say, here we go again, lend me just a couple of seconds. Some of the uncovered pottery found in Canaan is made from fine Egyptian Nile clay, while other pieces were made from local clay but in an Egyptian style. 
and this style seems to suggest that the Egyptians not only traded with the Canaanites, but may have established colonies there. The actual role of Egypt in Canaan is by no means settled, especially in academic circles, but the two prevailing theories are that it was either a military invasion or merely trade and colonization. Lending credence to the military theory is the uncovered fortifications at Tel Esakon in present-day Israel, which dates to either Dynasty Zero or One, so in the Archaic period. The fort was apparently built in an Egyptian style, so probably indicates an Egyptian military presence. Whether he did or didn't invade, a military campaign by Normer to reassert Egyptian authority or to increase its sphere of influence in the region is certainly reasonable. Adding to this thought is that an artifact uncovered in Egypt, really a small box inscribed with his name, may have commemorated a military campaign in Canaan. But it may also represent the presentation of a tribute to Narmer by Canaanites. Either way, it's apparent that the trade route between Canaan and Egypt was important for both. Both the names of Narmer and his son, Hor-Aha, were found in the tomb of a woman probably named Nithotep. Since both father and son's names were found there, and in keeping with the understanding of the culture, it's thought that she was Narmer's wife, and therefore queen, and the mother of Hor-Aha. She may have also been the princess of Lower Egypt that Narmer married to help unite the two kingdoms. Adding credence is that a goddess named Neith is the patron goddess of Sais in the Western Delta, the exact area that Narmer conquered to complete the unification of Egypt. Her tomb is in Nakata in Upper Egypt, but this location has led other researchers to conclude that she was a descendant of the pre-dynastic rulers of Nakata, who ruled prior to its incorporation into a united Egypt. It has also been suggested that an artifact known as the Narmer Macehead commemorates her wedding with Narmer. There are other inscriptions that suggest that the two may not have been married at all. And with that, I now need to refine my oft-repeated caveat. If you want something to be remembered, you still need to write it down. But write it down clearly. And with that, I'll wrap up this episode. Please join me next week when I'll finish the pre-dynastic period and get started on the Egyptian Old Kingdom. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.